My guest is the Reverend Dr. Walter Arthur McRae. He calls himself a Chicago-based gospelizer, a holistic good news messenger of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. Thank God for that, my dear brother. You are also the author of 20 books. You have five decades of ministry behind you and who knows how many in front of you. Yes. But thank God you're here for the church, especially at this time. You are president of the National Black Evangelical Association. Yes. You serve many community-based organizations, and today you are pastor of the venerable Greater Union Baptist Church in Chicago. I would yes. guess majority African-American congregation. Would that be true? That's true. That is true. Well, yeah. Dr. McCray, uh, I'm honored and blessed to have you today for this conversation. And uh, what I'm hoping for myself, and particularly for my white evangelical clergy colleagues, is to get a little glimpse of this moment of tragedy in the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, of too many other, particularly black males, yes. but people of color across the board. We, we see it in a particular way because of our white experience. You see it in another way because of your black experience. Will you share with us how you see this as a black man, father? I think you're a grandfather, am I right? No, I'm, I'm a godfather. Godfather. Okay. You got multi-father roles there because you're also a father in the faith yes. to many. And you're a national Christian leader, and in particular an evangelical leader. Can you help us to see all this through your eyes and your heart? Yeah, well, we, we can try. But first, let me say thank you for uh, this time to spend with you. And uh, we pray that uh, this interview, these words, that the Lord will take it where he wants it to be. His word will not return unto him, boy. I'm a black, I'm a black evangelical of, um, of many years, you know, uh, perhaps 50 years or so. Um, I'm a, an incipient black evangelical of the black church. And I'm an explicit evangelical uh, black by association with uh, official black evangelicalism or evangelicalism there. Um, this and and I'm a, I'm a resident of uh, I live in the home in my community that I was brought home to from the hospital as an infant. All right. Dare I ask you what year? Yes, 1952. 1952. My father and my mother, Sidney McRae and Magdalene McRae, were the first. They were the black, first black pioneers on our street of Wilcox and Francisco in the East Garfield community of Chicago. And uh, they brought their home, the, the home from uh, Italians at the time. Uh, so the contextual, this is where I live. This is home to me. 
uh, I think Ezekiel say, uh, I sat where they sat. And so I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm immersed on Memorial Day. There was a shooting on my street. Uh, uh, one, two persons got shot. One was killed. The other one was able to escape and his blood is in front of our home on the sidewalk. Just this um, past, you're talking. Just this past Memorial Day, Memorial Day 2020. Um, the, uh, and I pastor in historic uh, Black Baptist Church in Chicago, and we just lost a, our oldest deacon, about 86 years old. Uh, this past weekend, we laid him to rest. And then, and the, so you have the convergence of, of black on black in my neighborhood. You have the, the oldest patriarch, deacon, elder of the church going home to be with the Lord. And we have um, George Floyd and his senseless uh, murder um, in the eyes of the, of, of the public. Um, this, the, the deaths of these men, and particularly George Floyd, just takes the guts out of, out of one, all right, black men. I've, uh, on my street, I've seen um, three or four generations of black men uh, get wasted, uh, but through gangs, through junk drugs, through the prison system, through diseases such as HIV, AIDS, etc., but through systemic uh, inequality and lack of opportunity for these black boys and men in my particular area of East Garfield. Okay. We know that the COVID-19 um, pandemic adversely affects disproportionately people of African descent. A lot of that has to do with with inequitable health care. And so we are sub more subject and prone to the disease than others. All right. And uh, yet the killing of, of George Floyd, the murder, is repeated in places all over the country. So we face battles inside and battles outside. Uh, we're proponent for black self-love. I think the scripture refers to that as storgos love. Storgos love, love between um, kindred folk, um, parents, to children, siblings, one to another. In that context of love, we believe that God loves the black man. God loves the black man who um, has been uh, oppressed, uh, who has been victimized, 
who has been criminalized way out of proportion in the criminal uh, injustice system, if you please, across the nation, all right? And what we see in this killing and its aftermath is a venting, even at times a rageful venting, uh, even if at times an irresponsible type of venting uh, targeting our own community. Uh, we, we've seen years of, of frustration and anger and uh, unfair treatment against the black male and it's coming out all right, not just from black males, it's coming out from black people and whites who are well-meaning and humanly sensitized to the plight of the African-descended condition, all right? So we have a lot of pain, a lot of pain, need a lot of understanding and empathy, need to be shown a lot of compassion personally, but need to see that that those who believe in Christ and say they believe in Christ, who are the power brokers and influencers and the decision makers, all right, and the thought leaders in the society step to the forefront and say, we must relieve black people of oppression. We must rectify 450 years of slavery, if you please. Um, we, 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 we must uh, come face to face with this uh, reality and deal with it responsibly and systemically as a nation. Dr. McCray, as you speak to this particular focus, I'm aware that many of my white colleagues, when this discussion begins about the history of black oppression, particularly slavery, but beyond slavery in our country, comes up in conversation among white evangelical pastors yeah. and other ministry leaders. Very often, I will hear someone say something like this. Look, we have dealt with that. We have a constitutional amendment. Slavery is no longer e e uh, no longer legal. Yes, it was evil. It was bad, but it's in our past. Get over it. In fact, I heard one national ministry leader say that blacks need to get over this. Yeah. Now, they don't say the same thing about other historical sins of America and current ones. For example, I will hear all of my white conservative evangelical clergy colleagues will say, we need to repent of abortion yes. or of sexual immorality in our country. Uh, but when it comes to this, they, they stumble over it. Can you help us as your white brothers and fellow ministers of the gospel to understand why we must acknowledge this pain, this oppression, this evil, this uh, victimization of blacks in this country. Why must we do that? Yes. 
the the uh, we would assume that the white audience to whom you refer are biblical. If that is the correct assumption, that we believe that the Bible is sacred, the word of God, then we order our steps according to that biblical ethic, and particularly the words of Jesus, who came to set the oppressed free and to usher in the year of Jubilee, which dealt with systemic change, all right, of society toward those who were blinded and bruised and oppressed and captives. Now, the biblical, <clears throat> let's, let's put it in the mold, trying to help our black, our, our white clergy, Let's let's put it in the mode of um, offenses. If your brother offends you, go speak personally to your brother. If he hears you, then you've gained your brother. So we say to our white evangelical counterparts. You, you've offended. In some ways, you've been on the leading of the offense of historical racial uh, victimizing of African descended people. So <clears throat> tell our brothers you've offended. They should say, um, forgive us. Then we would say, we forgive you, but that is not the stopping point. Then our white brothers are supposed to say, according to a biblical ethic, what can we do to rectify the situation and come to restore proper relationship? Then as those who've been victimized, we say to our white brothers, and sisters, this is what you should do. That is the point at the, at this at that juncture, uh, Reverend Rob. That is where white evangelicalism and America has fallen short. The answers, according to biblical uh, ethics, the answers. To, to rectifying the problem are found with those who have been the victims of the problem, the oppressed. Scenario, Acts chapter six, the widows being, the Hellenistic widows being uh, unfairly treated in the distribution of food versus the Hebrew widows. The apostles come together, deal with the problem. They say, you choose certain folk, says it to the church, you choose certain folk who will be over this matter. Gave them a criteria, some Holy Spirit-filled folk, etc. The church came back 
and chose seven who would uh, be over the serving the tables. Of those seven, all seven were Hellenist. They were not Hebrews, they were Hellenists. And so the early church put the, the rectification of the problem in the hands of those children of those who had been oppressed, the widows. And the amazing thing about it, we never hear any other thing about such a problem in the church. It was we're saying to white evangelicalism and to white America, convene, put together black folk and listen to us and we will guide you in terms of rectifying the problem, historical problem of America's original sin, slavery. Yes. Now, uh, thank you for that beautiful lesson. I'm certainly going to be prayerfully reflecting on all that you just said and visiting that passage from Acts and looking at it anew. Yes. I thought I had preached every angle of it in my 40 years. Yes. I have never seen it through that lens, and I'm yes. grateful to God for that insight. Now, can you take us one step deeper into your own personal experience? How you now, per, when you see the events that unfolded in Minneapolis or in Georgia recently. Yes. Uh, and I could go on with yes. any number of incidents that we all watch on the news, we see it reported, it's posted on social media, but we all witnessed that terrible scene in Minneapolis. Yes. Of a white police officer with his knee in the neck of an unarmed, bound, and totally subdued man. Yes. I dare say, as a white man, I see it one way, and I'm incapable of seeing it as you see it. I, I have not had the life experience. I'm not under the same potential threat. Uh, yeah. Dr. McCray, I have to tell you an experience that came to my mind when I watched that. Mm. I've been arrested and I've been jailed for protest work. Yes. I remember when an officer got very rough with me and he had his knee not on my neck thank god but on my thigh and he was inflicting a lot of pain on me to keep me on the ground and all i had to say was officer ouch ouch he immediately withdrew mm. his knee and he said i'm so sorry are you all right you, are you all right that's how he responded to me mm -hmm. mr floyd begged for breath Yes. And got no relief at all until he was dead. Yes. That's a very different experience that I had as a white man and Mr. Floyd had as a black man and that you have. Yes. 
Can you help us see it through your eyes and feel it? Yes, the, the, um, said very painful suffering. My daddy was a sharecropper. My daddy, he was born in 1891 and was sharecropping in the Delta of Mississippi. Told me the stories. He left Mississippi, uh, came to Chicago. He actually served in World War One, etc. But he says he came from Mississippi, and because he was going to kill or be killed, he was plowing. He said, "I plowed with a gun in my belt." And, and I plow and the gun wore a hole in my side. All right. So he escaping oppression coming to the north in Chicago. When I see um, what happened to George Floyd, uh, a lot of those memories of my dad come back to me and experiences that he told me about, for instance, the Red of 19 and 19, where riots broke out all over the country and particularly hot in Chicago. My daddy was in the midst of that. When I saw what was happening with the neck of the, uh, my brother and the police officer's knee on his neck for a prolonged period of time, and saw it again, and then heard the analysis of it. All the information starts coming in. It makes my blood boil. I see several things at one and the same time. I saw social oppression. I saw uh, illegal law enforcement oppression. I saw complicity of other officers who refused to say anything. I um, saw inhumaneness of an officer for a man pleading for his breath, calling for his mama. That's what got me deeply, calling for his mama the mother-son relationship in the black community is so sacred. And when all the chips are down, if you aren't calling on the Lord, you're calling on your mama. And he called on his mama and the officer did not hear it. There was an intervention by some people standing around, in other words, to say, do you know what you're doing? There was one who was trained in martial arts and had worked with police officers, et cetera. His interview was on CNN. And he approached the officer to, to appeal, do you know what's going on? This shouldn't be happening, in so many words. And the officer, the victimizer turned a deaf ear to all of that. 
which made me see also the demonic in that scene. I, I saw some legal stuff. I saw some social stuff. I saw some cultural and racial stuff. I saw some personal stuff, but I also saw some demonic stuff. Whenever you can snuff out the life of a person in nine minutes before you move yourself or just, or just turn him over or remove your name, whenever you do that and persist in doing that, you are acquiescing to demonic forces in your life and in your social experience. And that's what I saw. I also put myself in the place I'm sure many have done. What would I have done personally if I had been directly on the scene? I will not second guess any of those standing around in terms of their action. Uh, if some had intervened, it probably would have been a bloodbath at the hands of the other officers who killed other black men and women as their fellow officers was killing the one on the ground. But I tend to believe that if I had been in the situation and the spirit of God come upon me, I believe I would have risked my life and said, no, you can't do that. And suffered the consequences. That's what I think I would have hoped to have done. There are times when you can't outthink yourself. There are times you must act with your gut, like Paul did with the soothsaying woman, demon-possessed. He got tired and turned to her and, and cast the demon out of her. He, he was just tired of her many days of stuff. He responded like Moses, who saw an Egyptian oppressing the Hebrew, and he looked that way and that way, Moses killed that Egyptian. Um, there are times, one of our mentors used to say that the oppressor sets the, the level of the oppressed response to social injustice. The oppressor does that. Um, that's some of what I feel. And if I could put myself vicariously in the of it, I've been known to step forward in unjust situations and speak forth. I've been known to do that, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, as you were describing what you hoped would be your response, and, and then uh, 
this concept that the oppressor sets the bar yes for the response from the oppressed it made me think immediately of our namesake here yes. at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute yes and of course Bonhoeffer who in his magnum opus ethics tells us how he came to embrace the conspiracy to take out a head of state a cruel mass murdering tyrant yes it would be a consistent line of thought here but so so uh this is an insight we have to gain ourselves is how how we deal with this supreme question thank you for bringing us back to that the other thing about bonhoeffer that came to mind was his oft repeated quote that there comes a time when humans are threatened to such an extent he drew the analogy of the car that's careening out of control and threatening innocent life he said there comes a time when you must thrust a spoke into the wheel well i was told by one of his premier translators that that's actually a very poor translation of his words what he was really saying was when one must thrust himself into mm. the spokes of the wheel yeah. in other words take the ultimate risk with yeah. oneself to intervene yeah. to save others which is what i heard you describing you would put yourself at risk in yeah. that moment as we all should as christ himself did yeah. for our benefit to rescue us this these seem to be eternal truths but here's here's a big problem in my white world mm -hmm. my white colleagues might say to you but dr mccray he was one bad apple he's been arrested he'll be prosecuted he'll probably get some jail time it's over it's being dealt with is that enough is it enough that he's arrested prosecuted maybe jailed for a little while does that put it to bed no no it does not put it to bed the sometimes there are chirotic moments and god uses a rosa park who refuses to get up and move to another seat on the bus. And God used that to spark a whole movement. All right, uh, only takes a spark to get a fire going. Systemically, um, there's a lot of baggage behind what took place. All right. And it has to be dealt with systemically, even even special training for law enforcement officials. And then you got to look at the whole criminalizing of a race and the whole criminal injustice system. All right. And that's one part of it. The law enforcement enforces the the stay in power and the wealth of the wealthy, right? And the white privilege, the law enforcement is their traditional role to uphold the system, all right? Which is fair to uh, a few and unjust to the overwhelming majority. And so this spark, uh, uh, thank God for it, 
because God will make some good come out of it to awaken this nation one more time. We haven't been awakened like this since the, the, the martyrdom of Dr. King. And, and that's why on the other hand, I don't like us destroying that which is bona fide a part of our community. I understand it, but I don't like it because in the East Garfield community and other Lawndale community of Chicago, we can look down Madison Street and Roosevelt Road, which is a block or a mile and a half away, two main quarters in the black community on the west side of Chicago. And I knew where the businesses were back 50 years ago, 1968. And I saw them burn. And I saw them destroyed. And the vacant lots that are there, many, believe it or not, are still there from 50 years ago. So I know now this Monday morning, folk won't have trouble going to a pharmacy in the midst of COVID-19. Trouble getting to a grocery store in the midst of COVID-19 and all the rest. And other essential services that were there are not here this morning, on this Monday morning, on June, June 1st. Now, um, so this one incident is not over in terms of an officer being prosecuted or four officers really need to be at this point arrested and charged. Uh, all four need to be, because all, all three of them, three standing by were complicit in our understanding of, uh, of a crime taking place. But that is not the end, all right, um, the church, and let me say this, the white evangelical church need to stand up and speak out. God, uh, Reverend Heaven, is given an opportunity to white evangelicalism to who have been supportive of, quote unquote, Trumpism and the spirit of it is giving the church another opportunity to distance themselves from one who would say, when the looting begins, the shooting began. All right. Giving the church, white evangelical churches and, and leaders, an opportunity to distance themselves and extricate them from this demonic spirit that's being perpetuated by the head uh, leader in the land. The church, white evangelical churches have propped him up. Conservative white evangelical churches have stood by a liar and a man who refuses to repent. That's really problematic, if not apostasy for the church, 
having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Um, it's not over. And, and I want to talk to the church. I want to talk about theological understandings and underpinnings. As you know, I've written several books on the black presence in the Bible. Uh, let me just show them. Volume one, the black and African identity of biblical persons and nations. Volume two, the black presence in the Bible and the table of nations. And also. Uh, folks who are watching, folks who are watching, I just want to let you know, we're going to put links up, live links, if you'd like to obtain these. And I urge you to do so. Yes. Now. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yes, Dr. That's, McCray, all right. but, that's all right. The. The, the theological underpinnings of, 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 of much of white Christendom needs to be challenged and transformed. This, the part of the problem is that white evangelicals look at their Bible, but they're not and the God of the Bible, and they're not seeing the same God that African descended persons are seeing. They're not understanding the Bible as many African descended persons are understanding the scripture. That is, the scriptures that, that, that there was a extensive black African presence in the Bible in the world all right, that has come down to us. And the Bible in both Testaments were written to communities who were under oppression. The word did not issue forth from those who were the oppressors. It issued forth from those who were being oppressed. The Hebrew Israelite community, old covenant community, the church in the new community were living under times of oppressions. And so those who are oppressed perhaps have a better uh, way to understand the scriptures than those who are the oppressors. So we need to convene, and perhaps it could be the Bonhoeffer Institute, <clears throat> a con convene a serious widespread for white evangelicals a new look at the black and African presence of scripture. I do, I believe this, stated positively, that, that if whites understood the extensive amount of information about black and African people in the scriptures and understood how God related to those African and black peoples in the scriptures, that it would begin to mitigate racism and white supremacy in personal lives and in church life and systemically, it will change the view.
the problem of many white evangelicals is they look at the scriptures and read their Bible and they think that they're seeing for the most part a reflection of themselves in the characters and nations of the scripture, which is a misconception, which is an untruth that needs to be correct. Yeah. I am open to that proposal, Dr. McRae. I think that would be a wonderful convening and a subject matter for us to look at prayerfully, reflect, reflectively, intelligently, in an informed way. You could help guide us in that. I will be taking that to my planning team as a proposal. I thank you for yes. it, and I will take that quite seriously. Yes, let me extend this. Thank you. And I want to, we want to partner in doing this. Surrounding this whole idea of black African presence in the scripture are certain uh, myths. All right. And one of the myths is that a predominant stream is that black people have been cursed by God. And that is what many whites subconsciously bring to their understanding of scripture. Despite um, we're all made in the image of God. And that is that one scholar called it blasphemy. Is that myth this unbiblical myth needs to be challenged that the scriptures do not teach in any way that God cursed black African humanity. And that needs to be eradicated from the spiritual consciousness of millions of white believers and parenthetically some black believers too. I think there's a sweet irony in that, in that God chose in the incarnation to embody himself in a man who looked a lot more like you yes. than he did like me. Yes, we get the idea that Northern Europeans looked like uh, Jewish, uh, is Israeli people of the Levant, of the Middle East, a lot closer to Africa yes. than, uh, than uh, Germany or uh, Norway. Yes. And so how interesting. And, and this study alone, I think, would be worth doing. Why would God choose to embody himself in a dark-complected yeah. uh, man? Uh, bearded with hair like your own and not like mine. What was the meaning of this? I, I believe, as, I, as I'm sure you do, Dr. McRae, that nothing God does is meaningless. Every act that God undertakes has deep and profound implications and purpose and meaning. Yeah. I'd love to explore that with you. Yes, and, and, and meaning in redemptive history. That is just not history 
but God's salvation of humanity. Uh, but in the incarnation of Jesus, of course, uh, hair like wool, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like brass burned in the furnace, symbolic, albeit, and yet depictive of, 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 a, of a racial group, Black African, uh, more so than of any other so-called racial group. But not only in the incarnation of Jesus, in the pre-incarnation manifestations. How much of that redemption story took place in Africa? Do we need to remind ourselves of our geography? Egypt yes. is in Africa. In Africa. Egypt is inextricably tied to Kush, inner Africa. All right, not Egypt associated with Europe. Indeed, uh, indeed. Let's talk yeah. Southern Egypt. Yes. Sudan, Ethiopia, right? Kush. Yes. All right. Kush. Yeah. So theologically, the church has to revisit these things. All right. And change theological positions and biblical understanding. Well, the theology is built on the biblical data. And so if the biblical data is is not correct. The theology will be incorrect. All right. And so this study of, of black folk in the Bible and in the world of the Bible is biblical data, the archaeology, the culture, the geography, the linguistics, etc. That goes into uh, the understanding the text and building theology from the text. All right. And so that's what the church needs to get to. That's what I've been laboring for over 40 years here. And I'm still laboring in it and will continue to labor in it because I think this is the rectifying thing as far as, as race relations are concerned. Do not approach African humanity as something that is lesser than or something that is the other. African humanity was original humanity. And Jesus manifests himself, incarnation, in African humanity, because African humanity composes all the strains and colors of humanity. All the rest of humanity come out of Africa. Yeah. Okay. You know, Dr. McRae, as you say this, I am mindful of what happened in, in my own uh, family education. I'm born of a Jewish father okay. who gave me a thorough education as a young man in the horror of the Holocaust, yes. the genocide against Jewish and other peoples by uh, the Nazi project. And of course, even before Adolf Hitler assumed power as chancellor of Germany and ultimate dictator, there was already work in the churches to Aryanize Jesus, to strip him okay. of his Hebrew, Middle Eastern, dark-complected yes. 
nature, origin, uh, ethnicity, mm-hmm. and to purify him and make him a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, northern European. Yes. This was a theological project of the church. And may I remind my colleagues, we're talking about the official German church, yes. which is called the Evangelische Kirche, the Evangelical Church of Germany is the perpetrator of this. Mm-hmm. So this is in our, uh, might I say, white evangelical blood, mm-hmm. and it must be dealt with. Yes. And I, I agree with you. I feel it now. I know of, in, of it in a sense of urgency I've never had before. I would gladly sit under your tutelage on this. I hope we can arrange that. I will tell you, while I've experienced Chicago winters and I have no desire to be there during those months, I will say a big regret I have not being a Chicagoan is that I can't come over and visit Greater Union Baptist Church to hear your preaching. I would love to have your tutelage as an elder brother in Christ, as a minister of the gospel of a decade longer than my own. And so I'd like to try to arrange that in these last couple of minutes with my fellows. Can you give us your sage advice, your guidance as a seasoned minister of the gospel? You'll be speaking here to many younger men in formation in their ministries, some of them in the first decades of their work as pastors, evangelists, missionaries, chaplains, institutional leaders. Can you give us a word of counsel in this hour when we feel vexed? I I, I don't want to presume that most of my fellows are callous about the experience in Minneapolis. They are not. They're deeply Mm. disturbed about it. Mm. They just don't know what to do about it. Speaking to younger pastors, Mm -hmm. ministry leaders, institutional executives, denominational officials who are saying, what can we do? Dr. McRae, what can we do as the majority white evangelical church in this moment of time? What do you advise us okay to do okay I, I think of several things one i'm president of the national black evangelical association the premier evangelical association in america since 1963 all right and we're in the process of rebuilding and revitalizing for a new generation one very substantially can financially support this black evangelical ministry you know and i say that unapologetically financially support the national black evangelical association so that we might continue to do the ministry of intra-group reconciliation and inter-racial reconciliation as the lord would have it continue a ministry that's very important because a lot of times the racist views are unhistorical views, all right? They, 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 don't, they don't deal with 
the realities of the Black experience properly, historically. NBEA has stood the test since 1963, all right? We're retooling like many other organizations are and groups are retooling for the present generation. So financially support the NBEA, number one. Number two, many of the young white brothers need to, uh, and or sisters, need to align themselves with uh, a black evangelicals, all right? Align themselves that is in relationship, in a real relationship of cornea, and submit to that black or African descended leadership, not to join in order to take over not to join and say with the brothers or sisters to say we have the answers, but we are willing to follow the indigenous leadership of your people. All right. Um, that's very important. There are whites, you know, who have joined in with blacks, whether it's on the church level or community organizing level leadership level and they come in as submit themselves as followers to black leadership all right um i think that's very important the other thing is to as you said this already to to engage as far as some of these teachings are concerned but the whites need to read the insider's view of black evangelicalism. All right. I wrote, uh, and I'm sure the link will be up, pro-black, pro-Christ, pro-cross, African descended evangelical identity. We wrestle with cultural and theological issues against the backdrop of white evangelicalism and manifestations of racism in this book, this major textbook here. And we recommend that as required reading in spiritual formation. All right, required reading in spiritual and ministerial formation for white evangelicals. All right, because the message addresses that from an insider's viewpoint on black evangelicalism. Fourth thing is challenge, we challenge our white brothers and sisters to understand what their cross is. Jesus says, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Oftentimes we've preached on that as I did, talked about that, but it was back in 2012 when the Holy Ghost said to me, oh, this is your cross specifically 
Now I can bear it better. Um, we're not calling anyone a, a crop to do cross-racial work in America who does not sincerely have that calling in their experience because you're going to run into buzzsaws. You're going to run into hate. You're going to run into in-lover language and all of that. And you've got to have some staying power. And the only staying power I know is that you got a charge to keep and a God to glorify. And you will bear your cross in this re racial relations sphere and venue. All right. Those who would just dibble, uh, uh, dip their toes in the water, troubling waters of racial relations in America. We don't need toe dipplers. We need those who in, jump in the pool and immerse there themselves and will either swim or sink in the waters of racial relations in America. That's the kind of commitment that we need. All right. And so they'll understand their cross. Some have a cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a cross, <laughs> the cost of discipleship, and he bore that cross. We too have a cross to bear, you know. Uh, everybody won't understand it. Everyone won't accept it or see it the way you see it, but you've got a cross to bear. The white brothers and sisters, churches, organizations, Christian organizations, have a cross to bear and they need to bear that cross even if it means they lose the world but gain their soul well dr mccray thank you for that prophetic word for your insights for the wisdom of many years and much experience for the anointing on your life and for your own willingness to bear that cross. I know that is not easy. It's certainly not the most popular ministry for you to have. That's correct. No doubt about it. Yes. But you've challenged us deeply, my elder brother. Thank you for that. We will be richer just for having heard you. I hope even more so for acting upon it. I know. Just as a yes. closing word of testimony, I will tell you, of course, we've been referring to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his singular, most life-changing, I would argue, most deeply spiritual moment was his experience at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem okay. in 1931 and again in 1939. Yes. And it revolutionized his life. It put him on the road to his calling, ultimately as a martyr. Yes. For me, it was just the providential joining in my late-in-life doctoral cohort. I waited until I was in my 50s to do my doctoral work. Mm -hmm. And my cohort happened to be all black brothers. We may yeah. have had one sister in there. I think it was all male. I was one of only three white men in a large cohort 
Yes. And it revolutionized not just my life, my viewpoint of the world, enriched my human experience, certainly my Christian experience, but it deepened my theology. Mm -hmm. And this is what draws me to you. Mm -hmm. And I hope it's only the beginning of collaboration together. I will do everything I can to facilitate that. For now, I want to thank you for all you've done for us, for the church, for the people of God, for humanity through your work. And I'm looking forward to the next opportunity that we have together my dear yes. brother, thank you for this time you've spent with me here. We're so grateful yes. to God for it. And praise God for it. And I would share with you that if you got five or six folk together and said, Dr. McCray, come to us, spend a day with us, I wouldn't do that. These days we'll make it easy on you because it'll be by Zoom, but in the future you'll have to get on an airplane to make good on that, and we will do everything we can to receive you warmly and take good care of you, my dear elder brother in Christ. Thank you for everything today. We're going to widely disseminate this. I know you'll be hearing from folks. You'll certainly be hearing from us, and we'll make sure they have all the resources they need to get Uh, the books and other materials you have produced. Thank you, Dr. McCray. God bless you. Peace to you. Be encouraged.